Welcome to the Employment Law and HR Podcast with your host, Allison Colley. Hello and welcome to this episode 209 of the Employment Law and HR Podcast. I'm your host, Alison Colley. I run the firm Real Employment Law Advice, where together with my colleagues, we provide advice and assistance to both employers and employees. Our flagship service is our HR Harbour membership service where we provide ongoing support for a fixed monthly fee to employers. If you'd like to learn more about the service that we provide and how we can help you with your business on an ongoing basis, then please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can email me for a quote. My email is alison at realemploymentoradvice.co.uk or you can give us a call on our main office number for a quick chat or to arrange an appointment. The number is 01983 897 The costs for the service really are minimal in comparison to some of the risks that not having the right support for HR and employment law can bring. Now, in this episode of the podcast, I'm going to give you a rundown on how to deal with disciplinary investigations. This is a question that comes up fairly often in relation to the work that we do. And it's really important when considering how to deal with dismissals. And for those of you who listened to last week's episode, it just follows on nicely from some of the things we were talking about in relation to gross misconduct and unfair dismissal. So without further ado, I'm going to get into this week's featured content. So disciplinary investigations. Now it can be a tricky process if you haven't done a disciplinary investigation before or if you're faced with something that is quite complex or potentially risky. I mentioned before about last week's episode of the podcast in which we talked about gross misconduct and focusing on what gross misconduct is. But in the course of that, I talked about some cases in which the Employment Tribunal made decisions around unfair dismissal and their decisions were focusing around the process that was followed and the fairness of the decision and how the employer actually reached that decision. So having a fair investigation is critical if you are faced with a claim for unfair dismissal. And the reason for this is not only will the tribunal look at the fairness of the process but they will also look at how you've reached that decision. The key test in relation to unfair dismissal is a test called Birchall from a case involving Mr Birchall versus British Home Stores Limited from 1978. And within that, the test that the Employment Tribunal will follow is, did the employer genuinely believe the employee to be guilty of the misconduct? Then they'll ask, did the employer have reasonable grounds for believing that the employee was guilty of that misconduct? And then finally, at the time it held that belief, has the employer carried out as much investigation as was reasonable? So you can see in relation to the legal test for unfair dismissal, how investigations can be critical to the finding in the long run. So if you are dealing with a case of a disciplinary allegation against somebody and they have been employed for more than two years, it's important that you follow the correct process and undertake a full and thorough and fair investigation. And so what I'm going to be talking about is the steps that you need to take in that regard and just to guide you through, including some of the most frequently asked questions so that you can ensure that you're undertaking a fair investigation and any decisions that you make are based on a genuine belief of misconduct. 
So the first thing you need to do if you have to deal with a disciplinary investigation is to look at what your internal procedures or processes say about that investigation, how it's dealt with, making sure that any processes that you have in place are not contractual so that you can follow them as guidance but you don't have to stick to them to the letter. So making sure that you understand exactly what your own internal processes say. Now, if you don't have an internal process, then that's fine. You can follow the steps I'm going to run through in the podcast today. The second thing to do is to decide who is going to be the best person to deal with that investigation. Now, it may be that you have someone in your organization who's experienced in this or has had some training. They will be the best person to do it. But if you're like many businesses, particularly small businesses, you won't have somebody with experience in this and they won't have had training. So it's important to think about who is going to be able to, one, have the time to deal with it and to be impartial enough to undertake the investigation. Again, it can be really tricky in small organisations where you only have a few people involved. And so finding someone impartial is almost impossible. You don't necessarily have to appoint someone externally It does depend on the nature of the investigation and the allegations as to whether it's proportionate to appoint someone external. So my organisation, for example, my colleagues and I undertake investigations quite frequently for businesses where they feel that they either don't have the confidence to deal with it internally or, or it can be quite complex and they're worried about the potential for arguments around fairness and um impartiality of that investigation but you don't have to have someone external if you feel there's someone who can approach it from a a neutral position then you can appoint them as the person to deal with the investigation once you've established who's going to deal with the investigation you need to look at what the scope of the investigation is so setting out exactly what the charges are or um, the allegations whatever however you want to put it whatever the, the the points are that you're going to be investigating and you're going to be looking through And I would recommend that this stage that you set this out in writing. So what is the scope of the investigation? What is it at this stage, early stage, I'm going to be looking into? And then once you've established the scope of the investigation, you can then start to formulate a plan as to how you're going to deal with it. Now, again, depending on the nature of the allegation and what's being dealt with, you may need to speak to the individual who's accused first. It may be that they hold all the information that's necessary for you to investigate or to look for where to go next. It may also be in a situation where you don't want to alert the person who's being investigated yet because perhaps you need to obtain some evidence or information that they have access to and by notifying them about the investigation it could prompt them to tamper with that evidence or information. So really it does depend on the allegation that's being made as to whether you need to speak to the individual who's accused first. It may also be that you need to make some initial inquiries because the information you have about the allegations or the what you're going to be investigating is limited. So you need to make some initial inquiries with maybe a witness or the person who's brought forward this information or if it's a manager who's raised it in the first instance, you need to have some initial inquiries with them to Uh, establish more around the scope of the investigation. So really just doing that background work, deciding how you're going to approach it, which uh, employees you're going to speak to, which witnesses there are, and how you're going to look at it. The next thing is then gathering that evidence. Now it may be again depending on what the allegations are that there is evidence available 
that you can use that isn't necessarily witness accounts. So wherever possible, trying to obtain hard evidence that isn't based on opinion or uh, the views of individuals is very important. Could be that you have CCTV footage, it could be that you have documents within emails, it could be that you have a policy or process that you need to get together. So find all of the evidence that you can in relation to that before you start talking to individual witnesses. And then when it comes to talking to witnesses, of course you have employees within the organisation, but don't just limit your discussions to those employees. It might be that there are external third parties who witness things or can provide evidence that's helpful for you. Where you have somebody who's a third party and potentially a neutral third party, particularly where facts are disputed, it can be really helpful in establishing the um, real truth of what you're investigating. Now, when it comes to speaking to individual employees, it's important that you again maintain confidentiality. So you always start those discussions with a warning to the individual that what you're talking about should remain confidential and it is part of an ongoing investigation and they should not discuss it with others. And then the degree to the information you give them about the allegations you're investigating will again depend on the individual circumstances. Of course you've got to balance the confidentiality of the individual who's accused against trying to obtain the information that you need for the investigation process. And this can be quite tricky, I have to say, because you want to give enough information so that you can uh, get to the truth of the matter, but without giving away everything that might compromise the confidentiality of the individual who's accused. Because of course, at this stage, you are just investigating. So it may be that there is no substance or no case to answer once you've looked into it further. And the last thing you want to do is to give a whole load of information about someone to their colleagues that then makes it untenable for them to continue to work or for them to feel uncomfortable in the future because people have made assumptions about them as a result of the investigation. Now, when you're holding these meetings with individuals to obtain their evidence, you need to keep a record of what's discussed. And that would again depend on your own preference and the agreement of the person you're talking to. But if you feel that you can make sufficient notes during that meeting and discussion, then of course you can make notes yourself. It may be that you want to bring a note taker with you if you feel that you can't have a good conversation and have a good flow of conversation and take notes at the same time. So you could bring a note taker. Or alternatively, you can, with the permission of everyone present, audio record that meeting. I have to say, if I'm undertaking an investigation, my preference is to have an audio recording. Um, One, because I can't write quick enough and also have a conversation with somebody. But two, because you have that audio recording, it is a full and thorough recording of what was discussed and it can't be disputed later on Um, it's really helpful to have that I think if everybody agrees so having an audio recording again is one way in which you can get a very good record of what's discussed should you need it in future. One of the hardest parts about undertaking an investigation in relation to disciplinary allegations is approaching the person who has been accused. Now in most cases you will need to speak to the person who's accused in relation to the investigation process in order to make it fair and thorough and how you approach that is as I say something that people worry about so I think it's important that you set out in writing 
for the individual as much information as you can about the allegations and what you're investigating. There is no specific requirement unless it's set out on your own policy to do this but I feel like it's very important for that individual. Lots of the gripes and things that cause upset with people who are being investigated revolve around being sort of sideswiped and not having enough information. So I hear of people just being called in, asked questions, and that's the first that they know that they're being investigated. They don't get the full information. They go away. They're upset about it. They start to worry about what the scope of the investigation is, what exactly they're accused about. And it can really break down those relationships and cause significant stress. So I say, wherever possible, where it's not going to compromise the investigation or upset other employees or cause difficulty with others, is to put the allegations that you're investigating or the scope of the investigation in writing to the individual, notifying them that you are investigating, that it is the investigation stage at this point you don't have all the evidence that's the purpose of the investigation and therefore you just want to have a discussion with them to get their views on it in order to carry on the investigation and see where it needs to go next. Often people will confuse investigations with disciplinaries. They'll feel that they need to have all the evidence. They might ask you to give them all the evidence. They might ask you who who started this process, who's made the allegations. You don't have to give all of that information at this stage and it's important to emphasize that to the individual. The point of this discussion is an investigation. If at the end of it I conclude that there is a case to answer and it should move forward to disciplinary, at that point you will receive all of the information and evidence. But at the moment, really, I just need to talk to you for your account of events and to establish if you have any evidence that's important for the investigation or if you feel that there's anyone else I need to talk to. And being very clear with the individual in writing and verbally about the process and the purpose of the conversation should help to alleviate their fears. Inevitably people will be defensive and they may decide that they're not going to engage in the process or that they are digging their heels in and they want to know the ins and outs of everything before they'll speak to you. Well if they refuse to speak to you then of course you can't take into consideration their point in relation to the investigation. I would try to encourage them to engage if they don't want to meet ask them to provide in writing any information or documents that might help your investigation or ask them to let you know who they should speak to or they feel you should speak to as part of the investigation but try to get them to engage. Now in relation to the discussion with the individual they don't have the right to be accompanied to that meeting. So as you may well know, under the disciplinary process and procedure, they have the right to be accompanied at a disciplinary meeting, but there is no right to be accompanied at an investigation. However, I do always recommend that if somebody asks to be accompanied, that you allow them to. Again, what you want from that individual is for them to be engaged. You want them to have the opportunity to provide information and to have a fair process. So if that means allowing them to bring someone with them, a friend, a relative, a colleague, so that they feel comfortable and will engage in that process, then I don't think you have anything to lose by agreeing to that. Of course, if you're dealing with something that's very confidential or in relation to information that you may not want a third party to hear, then you can insist that they bring a colleague rather than somebody external. But I think that's quite rare in those kind of cases where it wouldn't be appropriate for them to bring a friend or a family member, as long as they agree to keep the matter confidential, of course. 
Once you've completed your first round of gathering evidence and speaking to witnesses, it's then important to review the information that you have and see what facts you've been able to establish and what facts you haven't been able to establish from the evidence and to see if there's anyone else that you need to speak to or anywhere else you can go in relation to that evidence. You've done your first round of evidence and then you've analysed it and decided actually I've done a full investigation, there's nowhere else I can go in relation to this. Or you might decide, well, actually, off the back of that discussion, I need to speak to someone else, then you can do that. So just taking a moment to pause, review and see where you need to go next. If you've gathered all of the evidence, then that stage is the point in which you start to put together your report. And Again, in order to ensure that you have a fair process and you have enough information for any disciplinary action to be fair and thorough, it's important that you set everything out into a full report. So establishing the facts that you have been able to verify, those that you're unable to substantiate, and then who you've spoken to, the documentation you've received and reaching your conclusions based on the information that you have. And at the end of that, you would need to make a recommendation. At this point, you're not deciding on any disciplinary outcome or sanction. So you're not deciding on the guilt or whether there should be a warning or dismissal. But what you're saying is there are sufficient facts and evidence here to move forward to a disciplinary process. And at that point, then you hand it over to the person who's going to be dealing with the disciplinary uh, hearing. So I just want to talk through a couple of examples of allegations that can arise and the kinds of things you need to do in regards to those investigations. So the first one is in relation to an allegation of sexual harassment. So if you receive an allegation of sexual harassment that you're investigating, you then need to obviously go through that that allegation and where possible try to obtain some specific examples of what's taken place including the dates and times and who may have been in attendance when that behavior was alleged to have taken place it's critical in a serious allegation like sexual harassment to make sure that you have the specifics where possible and speaking to the person who is the victim of that sexual harassment, again, is important to try and pin them down to what the dates and times are and who was there. And then obviously, if there were persons in attendance, those would be the people that you need to speak to to get their view on what took place. If there are no witnesses, so they're saying that actually there was no one else present when this took place, which is quite frequent that happens I have to say then you can ask questions about people's character or experience with the person who's accused so if you don't have anyone who was present at the time that alleged sexual harassment took place but there are people who work closely with that person who's accused then of course you can ask them about their experiences again maintaining confidentiality where possible and not disclosing information but asking general questions to try to establish how they feel about working with that person. It might elicit that they've also been the victim of some kind of harassment or have witnessed it in some other way or it might be that they say actually I have no problem with them at all I've never seen anything untoward or inappropriate from that person and of course in 
an allegation of sexual harassment, confidentiality is critical. And it's unlikely in this kind of scenario that you would have any written evidence. Occasionally you might have email correspondence or you might have text messages, but generally it's normally about the account of the persons involved is the main evidence that you have in a sexual harassment case. The next common scenario that arises in relation to investigations is allegations of theft. So this is where an employee is alleged to have stolen something. Again, it's important to start with where the allegation or the information came from originally. How has this come about? Was it because somebody's reported it? Is it because of an audit? Is it because of CCTV? Where did it start out? There must be somewhere that that allegation has come from and that's your starting point for the investigation. And from there, you should be able to then establish where else you might find evidence either to support or negate that allegation. You need to think about whether there is any other possible explanation in relation to this. And that's where I say not only are you gathering evidence in relation to supporting the allegation, but also supporting the individual's account of events if they're disputing the allegation. I think in an allegation of theft that you need to interview the individual involved very early on for their version of events, probably the first person that you talk to, because it can be that there is some kind of misunderstanding or mistake that you can easily establish by speaking to the person who's been accused particularly if the allegations come from someone who may have seen something or had a suspicion. It may be that they have got the wrong end of the stick about things and actually speaking to the individual will clear it up very quickly. And yeah, just emphasising in relation to all investigations really that you have an obligation to investigate for information that could support the employee's account of events as well as the uh, person who's accusing them. So to round off, I'm going to go through some frequently asked questions, which may also help you in relation to your own investigations. And these are things that were asked fairly often in relation to the process. So the first is, um, we know they did it, do we have to investigate? Well, in order to establish a fair dismissal or fair disciplinary, you would need to investigate, even if you have solid grounds for concluding that they did it you would still need to obtain that information to support that those grounds for um, your belief so yes it's very important to investigate now if someone's been employed for less than two years then their right to claim unfair dismissal is very limited and therefore you might decide that the investigation you need to undertake is lesser than somebody who's been employed for two years but it's still important to have some form of evidence to support what you're saying even if they have been employed for less than two years. The second question is, should I interview the accused in the process? And I would say that there are a few circumstances in which you shouldn't actually interview the person who's accused in the investigation process. Now, there is no requirement to do so, but again, thinking about the fairness of the process, thinking about being able to have a balanced approach to look at both sides of things, I do think you need to speak to the individual who's accused as far as possible so that you can then focus your investigations on some things that may be in support of them. So they may be able to give you information that you don't know about who you need to talk to that would support their account of events. So yes, I do think it's important to speak to them in the process. How much information should you give the accused at the investigation stage? Well, as I was saying earlier, I do think you need to tell them what's been alleged. 
so that they have an idea and where possible as much information to help them to respond in the investigation. But you don't have to give them the full details. You don't have to tell them where the um, allegation came from. You don't have to give them the evidence that you've obtained so far. It's not the disciplinary process, it is investigation. So I would emphasize that to them. How do you deal with a reluctant witness? Well, where possible, try to get that person to talk to you, try to establish why they're reluctant to give information or to be a witness. And of course, you can't force someone down the route of being a witness, but you can at least ask them why they don't want to be a witness. And that in itself might elicit some information that's helpful for the investigation. Sometimes witnesses do want to remain anonymous. And I would say, Again, establishing why they want to remain anonymous and giving them the understanding that even if they give a statement and it's anonymous, the person who is accused may be able to establish that it's them anyway. So it may make no difference at all that they don't actually put their name to it. Um, So where possible, ensure that people do, witnesses do give their name and will be happy to go on record with the information that they've provided. And then the next question is, what if a person goes off sick and refuses to attend any meetings? Well, again, it's about explaining to them that you want to speak to them in relation to the process so that you can undertake a fair investigation and give them the opportunity to have their say and to find the information. If they're off sick, it doesn't necessarily mean that you can't contact them or you can't have a meeting with them. It does depend on the reason they're off sick and what guidance you have from their healthcare professional. But generally, most doctors will sign someone off as unfit for work, but they won't say that they're unfit to attend a meeting, for example. And there are also adjustments you can make in relation to the investigation process. So you can say, well, we'll deal with it by telephone or can I send you a list of questions and can you answer it or can you provide me with a list of witnesses and information I need to look into. So just because they're off sick doesn't mean that you have to stop the investigation process um, or that you can't get them to engage in some way or another. And the next question is, how long does a disciplinary investigation typically take? Well, I would say it does, again, depend on the nature of the allegation and the volume of information and evidence that you need to obtain. But where possible, it should be dealt with within seven to 14 days. That's why I say when you're considering who is going to be handling the investigation, you think about their availability and their capacity to deal with it. The last thing you want is for this to be dragging on for a long time. I have seen some really horrific examples of employers who have taken months you know even years to carry out investigations and complete processes and the impact that it has not only on the accused but on other employees is huge so wherever possible you need to focus get the information together and take as little time as possible whilst also undertaking a full investigation of course um, but being reasonable to everybody involved. The next question is if you do record a meeting with individuals or witnesses or the person accused, do you need to transcribe that um, audio and do you need to provide it to the individual? Well, I would say that if you have undertaken an audio recording of a meeting, then you should share that audio with the individual who's been recorded so they have a copy themselves. And whether you need to transcribe it or not does depend on the nature of the allegations, what's been said. But I would say as part of the investigation process. So long as you can provide the audio, you don't necessarily need to transcribe it as well. Particularly if it's a long uh, meeting, it can take quite a while to transcribe it. 
But yes, just providing the audio would be sufficient. And then the final question that we're often asked is in relation to police investigations. So where you're investigating an allegation and there is an ongoing police investigation, you need to be very careful in this kind of scenario about who you're talking to in relation to witness evidence. So if it is a case where there are witnesses involved and the witnesses might be needed by the police, then it may not be appropriate for you to start probing them and getting witness statements for for your own investigations. Again, it does very much depend on what the nature of the misconduct is or the allegations that the police are investigating. It doesn't mean that you can't do your own investigation, but you just need to be mindful that you don't want to be interfering with any criminal proceedings in relation to this. And if you're in that kind of scenario, I would recommend that you get some advice on what you can and can't do or should and shouldn't do in that sort of um, situation. So there you go, that's a rundown on how to deal with disciplinary investigations. Just to summarise, the key points are looking at your internal process or procedure or anything you have in writing internally first, deciding who the best person is to deal with it, establishing the scope of the investigation, undertaking initial inquiries and information, possibly informing and discussing with the employee involved first, gathering that evidence establishing the facts that you are known, looking to see whether there is anywhere else you can go for further information or evidence, then completing your report and making a recommendation before handing it over. Hopefully you've seen from this podcast that actually undertaking a disciplinary investigation doesn't have to be complex or um, scary and, and as long as you follow a process and you are fair and you approach it from a neutral position as much as possible, then you can't really go wrong. But of course, if you are undertaking an investigation and you do need some advice, then myself and my team are available. Should you need, you can contact us. Again, my email is alison at realemploymentoradvice.co.uk. Or alternatively, if you really don't feel confident or you don't have confidence with anyone in your organisation to do the investigation, you can appoint an external party like ourselves to do that investigation for you. And that way you know that a complete, thorough and neutral investigation has taken place before moving forward with any disciplinary decisions. I hope you found that episode helpful and if you have any questions please don't hesitate to get in touch and of course if you have any suggestions for any future podcasts then I would love to hear from you any topics or questions you'd like to cover then please don't hesitate to get in touch I hope you have a fantastic week ahead and look forward to bringing you the podcast again in two weeks time thanks again for listening just want to finalize by saying I wouldn't be a lawyer unless I had a legal disclaimer so I must just say to you that the information in this podcast is for information only it's general review and a general update it's always necessary to get specific legal advice about your circumstances so please don't rely on anything that you've heard in this podcast but please do feel free to contact me if you'd like further information or specific advice